I wonder how observant you are. I find uh, on the very few occasions that I sit in the passenger seat of the car that I see far more than when I'm sitting in the driver's seat because clearly I'm always focused directly on the road ahead. Always. Here you are in church this morning. You've probably been here at umpteen times. I wonder if you've spotted things that you've not spotted before. For example, I wonder how many of you know the colours of the three bookmarks in the Bible here. I just noticed them sitting over there, the black, red and gold. I'm sure you could make a whole sermon out of that if you wanted to. Has anyone ever noticed those before? Do you notice them all the time? How observant are you? Have you noticed there's an unusual person here in church this morning? It's not just me. Have you seen the unusual person, the unusual character that really shouldn't be on the platform, that are only partially hidden, just to see how observant you are? Hands up those of you who really honestly, honestly saw it. Less than half. Here's my close friend, the dwarf Grumpy. And I bet those of you who did spot him thought he was for the children, the family spot earlier, but he's for this spot just because I wanted to see how observant you were or weren't. Because we're not always as observant as we think. We don't always see or recognise the possibilities that there are. We don't always react to things that are around us because we haven't really noticed the truth, the reality about them. As you travelled, this summer, and I guess most of you travelled, we didn't travel far, we did a little bit in Kent and we did a lot in Suffolk, and what better place could there be to come for a holiday than Suffolk? Well, I thought you'd be on my side. <laughs> so we, 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 got, we didn't go too far abroad. What about, about yourself? Wherever you went, what were the things that you saw that struck you, that actually you observed and were concerned about? They created in you a sense of conflict. Because there ought to be things like that all around us. This year we, um, we went down to Kent, as I said, and we, we met some really interesting characters. We met uh, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Can you imagine that? We also met uh, Dame Judi Dench. Dame Judi Dench. We didn't speak to her, but um, I had a bit of a problem because as soon as I saw her, that tune came into my head. There is nothing like a dame. And I started humming it, and then I started whistling it, and um, I don't think she heard. We also um, saw the, the beautiful Catherine Jenkins. Oh. <laughs> we saw her in Billericay, in Essex, would you believe? The classic classical singer. And we saw these three, three groups of people, but we didn't, uh, we didn't actually ever speak to any of them, but we've spoken about them. I've told that story uh, about me whistling, there's nothing like a dame, several times since that happened back in, uh, in May. There are, of course, for all of us, the people, the places we go, unspoken messages, challenges, opportunities that we may well speak about, we may well begin to talk about. People, places, posters, programs, most of which are the product of this age, declaring the values and the attitudes that dominate our time. Values that are increasingly not the values of the Christian faith, so unlike what the Bible teaches. Are they part of our conversation? Do we observe 
and begin to talk about them? Do we notice them? And how do we react to such conflicts between the way of the world's thinking and the way of God and of the Scriptures? Just over a week ago, a survey of 800 young Christians at Soul Survivor was released during a symposium on mission amongst 18 to 30-year-olds. They're the so-called missing generation, which is true this morning here, isn't it? The survey found that most of them were drawn to a church that could provide resources to help them in their personal faith. Secondly, one which provided excellent worship. And thirdly, one was a place where they could relate to people. Mike Pivolacci, who is the leader of Soul Survivor, commented on the survey in this way. He said that a culture of consumerism, individualism and entitlement had eaten into the psyche of 20-somethings. He added, 20-somethings are caught in a futile search for perfection. They're afraid of going to the real world and showed a great deal of pain. We've got to help them, he said. But how can we help the missing generation? How can you as a church help the missing young people this morning when they return from their weekend away? If we ourselves are just as comfortable with the cultural norms, with the things that the values of our society as they are, if we're not observing where the conflicts lie, how can we help them if we need help ourselves? How many of us have seen this Kit Kat advert all around until fairly recently? We have one at the end of our road. This is a photograph of it up in uh, London at the IMAX cinema. And it advertised, if you, if you ever saw it and you remember, it advertised Chunky Caramel Kit Kat. But how many of us recognise, observed and realise that the words or the letters OMG, the slogan that was adopted to sell this product actually stands for, you'll forgive me saying it, oh my God. See, we've reached a time when fun, attention-grabbing, simple, focused advertising can use almost anything. And we are hardly troubled or even possibly aware. Advertising, television, conversations all around us have long ceased to be edited or or censored or, or even controlled for what was once considered clearly to be blasphemy. So much change has gone on in the nature of our society and increasingly our attempts to live our faith are under threat. We're living in a country where biblical values and the gospel are increasingly unacceptable around us. A nurse called Shirley Kaplan, or Chaplin rather, was told by her bosses at uh, the hospital she worked at to either accept redeployment to a non-nursing role or face the sack because she refused to move the necklace that she'd worn for 30 years that was a cross. This coming Wednesday, I was due to speak at uh, the launch of an Alpha in the workplace in Hackney. But a complaint from a member of the company to the HR department has resulted in the course being cancelled and banned because this person complained that um, Alpha is homophobic. 
These challenging moments, these challenging experiences, this change to our culture uh, that is increasingly making it difficult for the Christian church and the individual Christian is not necessarily such bad news. I think we can take a much more positive angle, if you like, on all that we're about facing at the moment. And the good news to me is that this is not really that new. It is in the 20, 21st century, but in the past it's been prevalent throughout the world. And we come to Acts chapter 17 and we find that it was happening there and then in the first century. That the missionary people like Paul were up against similar challenges, if you like, throughout their, their, their lives and their ministry. Facing conflict that they turned to their advantage and became complementary to their mission. So we go to Acts 17 and ancient Greece. This is how one author describes the city at the time. From the Acropolis, you could see the well-planned open spaces, the parks where the wise and the foolish gossiped under the plane trees, exchanging new ideas and new philosophies, debating endlessly but concluding nothing. You could pick out the temples dedicated to a multiplicity of gods and religions, the groves of statues honouring myth and patron and hero. You would walk among the temples and statues, driven by curiosity, seeing in your imagination the glory of Athens five centuries earlier, seeing in reality an intellectual capital long in decline. See, Athens had been home to the most renowned philosophers in history. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle... They had built the most incredible architecture, the Acropolis, the Parthenon, even today, though a partial ruin has a unique grandeur. And the Agora, the place where it had porticos painted by famous artists, a place to listen to debate, the debate of contemporary statesmen and philosophers. The birthplace of democracy. A few years ago, I was on holiday in Greece and um, travelled around a bit, went to to Olympia, where the Olympic Games began originally. Went to Corinth, the ruins of the, uh, the city of Corinth that uh, Paul wrote to in, in, uh, that we have in the Scriptures. I went through the Corinth Canal on the boats, uh, on the boat, the, the, the sheer walls of the canal, just um, um, the, the workmanship, just unbelievable. But the thing that stood out in my mind or stands out in my mind most was the late night coach trip back to the airport as we drove through the night into Athens. I was fast asleep. And uh, suddenly I'm being tapped rather urgently on my shoulder. I wake up and I look out the window and I see the most astounding sight that this photograph will not give any credit to. The, the, uh, the scene was just absolutely incredible. On the hill, the Acropolis, aglow in the darkness of the night sky. It had been built high enough to be seen for miles around, described as one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to national glory and the worship of the gods. I saw it late one night. But this was the scene that greeted the greatest missionary of all time. 
He just escaped the threat of persecution in Berea, traveled 300 miles by sea, and had time to spare in this glorious ancient city of Athens. And everybody knew about Athens, and Paul knew about Athens. It's, it was a story spread around the world, a known world. And Paul had time on his hands. He was waiting. This new part of his missionary journey required that he needed his two best pals to come, Silas and Timothy, to support him in reaching this great city. So what to do? Well, what do you do if you've got time to spare? Why not do the tourist thing? And what was his reaction to this city? John Stott points this question out. He says, and what should be the reaction of a Christian who visits or lives in a city which is dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion? A city which may be aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent and spiritually deceived or dead. Probably describes London. Maybe even Ipswich. So this is what Paul did. We read in Acts chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Basically, he's not impressed by the tourist thing. Actually, he may well have been impressed by the grandeur of it, hard not to be, but his spirit was disturbed by what he saw. He was, it says, distressed. The Greek means to sharpen, to irritate, to stimulate, and it conjures up the idea of being churned up inside. Do you get that? Did you get that when I put that poster up and you realised what it actually meant? That the letters OMG with its meaning is blasted across our country? in public place, in the largest font. Do you get that when you see or hear that which is contrary to our Christian faith and belief, contrary to the will of God? So there's nothing casual about this response of being deeply disturbed or greatly disturbed or distressed. My mind goes to Nehemiah when he was distressed by the broken the reports of the broken walls of Jerusalem. And then later to Jesus, looking over that same city and weeping, churned up inside. This is the stirring of the inner heart, as it were, when faced with the twisted and arrogant values of a society like ours today. A society that G.K. Chesterton described when he said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing they then become capable of believing in anything. Now, it's one thing to become distressed, churned up inside, angry even. That's when it's about, about being conflict, conflict. But like Nehemiah, we might want to turn our recognition of what is deeply offensive to God in prayer, to prayer. No doubt Paul did, although we have absolutely no record of that. What he did was to turn his distress into conversation, into discussion. 
He kept alive the concept, the idea that there's more to life than what what he saw, what they were seeing and what they were doing and talking about. Tom Wright points out, Paul was not short of places to go and people to talk to. He did what he usually did in the synagogue, but we have no report of the reaction. More interesting, he argues in the marketplace or agora, which in Athens was a marketplace of ideas as well as other commodities. So Paul went to the place where you might expect to buy your fruit and veg, but you also could enter into great debate about almost anything. I guess it's a little bit different in Ipswich, although maybe not so different. I, 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 when I first moved to Essex um, five years ago, I had a very big surprise because I came from the south of England. I'd lived in, uh, near Eastbourne and I'd lived near um, Portsmouth. And when you went to the supermarket to buy your fruit and your veg and all the other things, you didn't talk to anybody. And they didn't talk to you. You just went about your business. You could get irritated because someone's trolley's in your way, but you don't talk to people. You don't even bother talking to the shop assistants, you know, the people who are stacking the shelves, because frankly, if you ask them where something is, they'll grunt something at you and you don't even understand it, so it doesn't help very much. I moved to Essex, not so far from here. And one of the first times I went into Safeways as it was... I'm busy shopping, I'm getting stuff off the shelves, and this voice says behind me says, you can get this cheaper in Lidl. (laughs) Sorry? I turned around, there's a little old man, he wanted to talk to me about the price of cornflakes in the supermarket. I wasn't prepared for such debate (laughs) on even the lowest intellectual basis. But that's what was happening there. You shopped, you talked, you debated... The Agora was a place of sharing of views. As Christians, we can fall into the danger when we look at the things that have gone wrong, the cultural shifts, the challenges to faith, and we can become more like disgusted of Tunbridge Wells than we can the Apostle Paul. We might just write to the BBC or even Gordon Brown if that will make any difference, but we'd never have a serious conversation with someone that actually helped them to discover a faith perspective on the issue that we've become concerned about. Not that it will always be plain sailing. It got Paul into trouble. We read the words. Let me read it again in the, the message. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. But others, he wasn't from Essex, by the way. But others listening to him go on about Jesus and the resurrection were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. And we'll find people like that, won't we? The Epicureans did not believe that God had any involvement in life. Or the gods, for that matter, had any involvement in ordinary people's lives. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that the divine force was within. I once appeared on a premier radio program, of all places. Isn't it great they've just gone national with DAB radio? Um, But this program was um, on a Saturday afternoon. I was there with a Ravi healer. You may not have heard of this, but it's a particular style of psychological healing. And it turned out this, this lady believed everything I believed. Of course. Jesus is the Son of God. 
but then so am I. And so is she. And so are we all. God is in us. No need for repentance. No need for faith. No need for Jesus really to have died. All becomes very, very confusing. Ravi, healing apparently helps you to become the best that you can be. It reawakens your awareness of who you really are. Facilitates the integration of your experience and guides you on a path to the highest wisdom. We find people like that and many other types. The big difference between now and then, Paul's times, is that debate and discussion takes place in some intellectual circles, but we may tend to keep somewhat quiet for an easier life. In fact, some Christians would even go so far as to say that we've made a kind of compact or or contract, rather, with society not to discuss or challenge pervading views, ideas and actions, but just quietly get on with our faith. There are people who really believe that. I suggest this morning that we need to rise up and make a stand. Not on the basis of creating yet more conflicts, but recognising that through conversation we can make the conflict complementary to the mission of sharing our faith in the marketplace, in the workplace, in the home. Of course we need people to do it at the higher intellectual, political area. And uh, many of you will know about CARE. I used to work for them a few years ago. And uh, uh, CARE is really active in seeking to make that difference in political sphere, the, the, the political sphere. Theos is a more recent development. Theos is a, a think, Christian think tank sponsored by the Bible Society, determined to think through from a theological perspective all aspects of society's uh, ideas uh, and concepts and issues. But for us, it needs to be part of our ongoing conversation. They need to find the opportunities and the opening gambits, I would suggest, all around us. We just need to be a little bit more observant. So take the nation's favourite street, even if it isn't yours, and a storyline that involves two young teenage Christians, just like two young teenage Christians on the youth, work, youth, youth weekend this weekend. They're not only talking about, one of them's not only talking about praying for her sister, but she's talking about her baptism and asking an elderly friend to speak for her at her baptism. All on Monday evening this last week. What an opportunity on Tuesday morning for those who see it, saw it, and can talk about it with the people they're with on Tuesday. Well, take a friend of mine standing on a train station uh, platform just a few days ago and noticing these ironic posters. First of all, on the left, a Bible text from the Trinitarian Bible Society. In the middle, an advert for Richard Dawkins' latest book, The Natural Selection, all about evolution. And the third poster, The Lion King. Just a reminder of who is king of it all. And then just down the platform, please note the front portion of the train beyond of the train beyond this point whatever that means but don't worry about that poster right now because you're not on the platform it doesn't matter to you 
Look down the platform at the next pole and you see a poster for Alpha with the title, Does God Exist? Yes, no, probably. Tick the box. All opening opportunities. Posters that could create conversation if we only would talk on the train. (laughs) Back in Athens, Paul uses something that he sees on his tourist trail. It's his opening gambit. He sees an altar to the unknown God. This is his starting point. On Friday evening, or Friday, the film Creation opened. I haven't yet been to see it. It's the film, it's the life story of, uh, of Darwin, Charles Darwin. It tells the story, apparently, of uh, his family and his grappling with the discovery, in quotes, that he has made about evolution and how that impacted his wife's faith. Conflict, yet another peddling of the evolution theory? Or can it be turned to advantage? Is it an opportunity for conversations? Is it complementary? Can it be complementary to our mission? Well, the Damaris Trust believe it can. And they have been able, with permission from the makers of the film, to create a whole set of resources to help individuals and churches use the film creation to awaken a discussion about faith. Turning something that could be perceived to be, for us, an issue of conflict into something complementary to the gospel. We need to seize such a day. We need to turn such things to a gospel advantage, an opportunity for conversation complementary to our mission. We may well start off by challenging the values and the behaviours of our day, but with God's help by his Holy Spirit, because we have the intention, they can be opportunities to explain one or more aspects of our faith, of the gospel message. Now when you look in Acts 17, some people have criticised the message that Paul gave to the, uh, to the people, to the people of the Areopagus, because, well, he didn't give the whole gospel. Didn't mention the name Jesus apparently, didn't talk about the cross, there's nothing in there about, well, a whole range of things, though he does talk about the resurrection. So, was his presentation weak and incomplete, or is there some other answer to this dilemma? The result of the message is quite clear. There are two types of people who heard Paul on that day. There were the people who sneered, the airhead comment. And I wouldn't knock that because at least they're responding. I think the hardest thing today is that people are too apathetic. They couldn't care less. It doesn't matter. You believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe or don't believe. So a response that is, to some extent, antagonistic is, is good. It's a response. It's a reaction. But also, the incredible thing is that from this very brief message that we have in Acts 17, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. 
Now, the fact of the matter is that what we have recorded in Acts 17 is probably only a snapshot of the entire talk. It could have been that it was quite a long and robust proclamation of the full gospel. But even if it is incomplete, let me let me reassure us this morning that engaging in conversation, conversation evangelism is what I'm calling it these days, is not about explaining the whole gospel in one moment that leads somebody to Christ necessarily. Conversation evangelism, having a conversation with someone off the back of seeing a poster, a person, a place, an attitude, a situation... Conversation evangelism is simply this. Using, telling one person one more thing that could lead them one more step closer to God or to faith. Telling one person one more thing that could lead them one more step closer to God, closer to faith. Because there could be other opportunities. And even if you don't have another opportunity, God can use somebody else to do one more thing or tell them one more thing that would lead them yet one more step closer to faith. The conversation is a starting point. So it's finding, I suggest this morning, the complementary nature of places and people and posters and television programmes and so many other things that we encounter. And turning the conflict that we may feel in our spirit into an opportunity for the gospel by telling one person one more thing that could lead them one step more closer to faith. It is plain to see, says Paul, that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so that you can worship intelligently. Know who you're dealing with. God overlooks idolatry as long as you don't know any better. That time is past. The unknown is now known and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has appointed, already appointed the judge, confirming, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, as BT used to tell us, it's good to talk. Let's pray.